This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tom Keneally, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, I would gather that you don't need much introduction. I call you um, an Australian treasure, um, and I think you're one of the greatest writers in this country. I'm overwhelmed. (laughs) I really do. I really do. Do you remember a few years back, Michael Parkinson was here and you and I and he did some work together and you recorded a conversation with him? Yes, that's right. And Michael Parkinson said to me at the time that he felt that you were so, you should be more valued than you are. Mm hmm. I, uh, well, uh, that, uh, as a narcissist, the narcissist in me says, yay. I think you're pretty special and I think lots of Australians value you. Uh, Tom was born in 1935 and he's Australia's most loved and acclaimed writer. Uh, Tom's first novel was published in 1964, Mm, the year I was born. That was a very good year. And since then, he's written a considerable number of best-selling novels and non-fiction works. His novels include The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, Schindler's Ark and The People's Train. Tom has won the Miles Franklin Award, the Booker Prize, the Mondello International Prize, and has been made a literary lion of the New York Public Library. Tom was also the subject of an Australian 55-cent stamp. Was it a 55-cent stamp? Yes, I believe so. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Tom's latest novel is Two Old Men Dying, a deeply compelling story that explores the journeys of modern Australians alongside their imagined story of the ancient learned man whose remains were discovered in Western New South Wales decades ago. It is perhaps Tom's boldest and most personal novel to date. Um, So I don't know if I said said it earlier, but it is an honour and a privilege to have you here today. I always, I see you around a lot and I saw you the other day at uh, the Arbia dinners and I always think how lucky we are to have you. That's, uh, that is very pleasant to hear, particularly after my last book. Uh, I killed the contemporary character of in that book with an operation, which then, while editing the book, I found I had to have. <laughs> and uh, I came through that, so far, that operation, better than my central character, Shelby Apples, did. And um, uh, therefore, it's, it's uh, 
uh, after an, uh, what, what was good enough for me to be described as a near-death experience? Yeah, of course, these little compliments are richer. And coming from you, of course, the Miss 1964, they're richer still. They're richer still. Okay, I want to talk to you about how you came to writing. Now, I, I, I think I know that you went to some Patrick's College in Stratford, yes. is that right? Talk to me about growing up in Sydney. Uh, well, I uh, we came down in World War II when my father joined the armed forces, came down from Kempsey, New South Wales, to uh, up near Port Macquarie, to uh, Homebush. Our infallible nose to find deadbeat locations mm. <laughs> remained in place as we chose Homebush. But, of course, our resources were not limitless, and there... As a little kid, I uh, then went to St. Pat's College, a uh, Christian brother's school. And um, in my schooling, I went, as, as many writers do, from being completely dyslexic to at the start. And in the era of ink, it was murder. Mm. Uh, because if you were clumsy, uh, you spilt ink all the time. And there were helpful little girls who would yell out, Sister, he spilt his ink again. <laughs> Beat him, sister. <laughs> but in, then uh, in high school, I decided the, in those days, the Catholic Church being very important in our lives, I tried to um, become, study for the priesthood. And thank God that didn't work. I got a lot, went a long way. It had a big impact on me. I went a long way towards ordination and left in my early 20s. Naturally, I had no skills in society. I had no skills in my discourse with 51% of the uh, human population, women. I had no skills. Uh, I was exhausted and beyond further study. Uh, and I was what uh, the largely Irish church of those days, Irish Australian church used to call, uh, I was a ruined priest. And therefore, I was a bit of an outsider. I got a job. I got a number of jobs, but the most important one was teaching. But I hung around with other males and uh, because I knew blokes, having been in the seminary, and um, uh, I um, yearned to be able to address the entirety of society. Uh, like a lot, uh, it isn't astounding, Cheryl, how people under stress write. Uh, the wonderful novelist uh, Rosie Scott and I put together a collection of asylum seeker writing because being in that extreme situation caused people to write a lot. And now we have the ultimate proof of it in this extremely, uh, 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 this wonderful Bushani book, mm. um, by which Ruth is written Bushani. by a man, uh, yeah. yes, uh, uh, and uh, written by a man on Manus Island. Uh, the 
And the um, I'll just stop you there, Tom, and just let for those people that don't know um, Beirut's Bushani story, he delivered a novel um, to Picador Publishers via text. Extraordinary, isn't yes, it? via a mobile because, phone text. Yes. Yeah, via, I, I mean, it just shows you art will out. And mongrels like Dutton can't stop it. <laughs> mm, mm, and it will. And his story has been heard. And yes. he still is, he's still um, locked up in asylum though. Okay, tell me how you came to – what was your first book? So um, my first book, because I was an outsider or felt I was, I had um, time to write. And my first book was a book I r- began in the Christmas holidays of 63 – might have been 62, and then finished about the following April. It Hmm. wasn't a very good book, although uh, Random House did me the ultimate honour of republishing it when I, in my 50th year of writing. But, um, and it has, it has its champions, but, um. Is that the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith? No, it was, um, The Place at Witten. Right, okay. Which was about, Disorder in a monastery, you know, mm. b- which is what I knew. Mm. Uh, and uh, yes, it's. I, I wouldn't dissuade people from from uh, reading it, but in those days, for young writers, it is important to know it was a little easier to be published. First of all, fiction was king over nonfiction. Nonfiction was looked down on. Now, mm. now it's looked down on. Now it's the other way around. Uh, if an enthusiastic editor read your work, uh, she, he was able to just about be sure he could get it published, persuade the editorial meeting. Whereas now it's a far more complex thing involving marketing, finance, book scan, who published a book like, uh, so like how, this two how, months tell, ago, tell me how the, Manuscript got to Random House. How did you find your publisher? Uh, well, the first publisher was Castle, which was an old company that yes, had offices I remember in them. Australia. And uh, they've now, uh, have they totally vanished? Um, yeah, I think so. But they were one of the major uh, trade publishers of my youth and they were uh, big in dictionaries too uh, they were very and dictionaries and maps i think did yes they do maps? that's right yeah. yes and how did they how did you find them and or how did they find you well now the great secret is that the publisher has to publish their book their address on the copyright page right and they do so in tiny writing <laughs> so whenever so you can't find them people ask me what do how do i get published say yeah. get that address mm-hmm. of who you want to be published by from inside the uh, copyright page. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and I simply sent it off, no agent. There were no agents in Australia. At that time. Uh, at that time. And uh, the Society of Authors had just been founded. No one knew about it. There were no festivals. There was little visibility for the literary community because Australian books were not popular even in Australia. Uh, and therefore, um, I published in total innocence and on the basis of one or two good reviews, including from the poet Max Harris, I decided 
that I would become a writer. I had been studying law. I'd just met a very good-looking woman who was looking after my mother after an operation. And, uh, and so things were going your way. And I thought, why not become a full-time writer? I had no one to tell me better. Our generation uh, were of the generation who won... Olympic 400 metres from the outside lane uh, who, you know, just gave things a go out of pure colonial ignorance. Now kids give things a go because they're well informed, but we did it out of pure colonial innocence that you couldn't live off writing, particularly mm. in Australia, half mm. fortiori in Australia. And uh, so I set up as a full-time writer and I got a grant from the um, Commonwealth, or what was it called? The Commonwealth Literature Board, it was called. It was a small granting group within the, uh, uh, brought into existence in Menzies' times. Uh, and it was, Menzies had the last word on who got it. So, uh, many writers used to complain, particularly Frank Hardy, that he could never get it because ASIO told Menzies <laughs> uh, not to give it to him. In those days, I was unknown, so I didn't have a track record. I'm sure <laughs> Menzies So there wasn't a file with ASIO? <laughs> yes, and uh, so uh, that um, – I had a very naive view of that – um, grant, um, which I got in the, was awarded in 1965 and used in 1966. 1965 was also the time I was married. I have to say of my life partner, Judy, whom I think you know that, uh, um, I do know. She, um, never said when I said, well, I'll be full-time writer. I'll give up studying law, which I was doing, because ex-priests, ex-monks make excellent lawyers. <laughs> they exchange the smoke and mirrors of the, of the altar for the smoke and mirrors of the, uh, the courtroom, you know. And, um, I, uh, gave all that up and started writing. And this six, uh, this four thousand dollars I got from the um, Menzies government, I treated it as coming from taxpayers like my parents, uh, workers, you know, and I thought I owed them a classic. So I really wrote very hard that year, and um, uh, I felt that. I was required to uh, by the obligation I'd incurred to the Australian taxpayer. I was a very innocent guy. Mm. Anyhow, there you go. I, I had incurred, but, but I think that's the way to look at it. You have incurred a debt to the Australian people. It's a debt you repay even monetarily, but you owe them something incomparable. And what was that book? Uh, that was uh, a book called Bring Larks and Heroes. My May the smiles of my shy granddaughters bring larks and heroes to my door. So Bring Larks and Heroes it was called. And it um, was very successful. It was published everywhere 
it, it uh, f- fully established me and made it credible for me to become a full-time writer. So by this, by your second book, you're established. Uh, the second book was a book called The Fear, and yeah. it was set in Homebush and Crescent Head, New South Wales, uh, in wartime, uh, my, uh, which is one of my main tropes because that's where we were during wartime. Uh, and then uh, I uh, wrote uh, Bring Larks and Heroes. I felt there were technical things wrong with those first two books that derived from the fact they'd been written part-time. Mm. And um, uh, so I, I was to, – to emerge as a writer then – I was very fortunate because there weren't many. Mm. There was myself, Thea Ashley, Patrick White, who sadly alienated everyone, but he was a genius, so it didn't matter, and his voice still screams out to us. Um, there are few writers, you know, and to, to be a writer in that Australia uh, was to be a bit of a rarity. People still said, but what do you do for a living, mate? You know, mm. because... They had seen the movies in which the writer gets the idea and the book's ready by Monday morning. (laughs) It just comes out just like that. (laughs) And so they wondered what I did for a living. The craft of letters did not exist, in other words, and the craft of letters for good and ill exists now. And every day there are better novelists than me than I was then being published by far more um, discriminating publishers. And um, they don't have the emerge, uh, the, the benefit of emerging as sort of the rare person on the landscape. Yes. There are many of them. They're, they're lucky and admirable people. It's wonderful that... Uh, they still want to be published in hard, in covers too and in print in hard form mm-hmm. uh, because they're cool dudes uh, in the techno age and we should all be past the physical book. But we're not. But we're not and uh, we love the physical books. You know, I think that's our animal side, the tactile animal. Yeah. There's no reason for people to go to university. You can do it all online, but it's not a human experience That's if right. you do it all online. That's it's a, not as human an experience. Uh, it's not as life-forming an experience. Uh, and so um, uh, kids still go to the physical university. Yeah, even. they still do. So tell me what was your next book. when? And so you were... Three or four books in, you were a full-time writer. Yeah. You had a lovely wife. Yes, indeed. And what came next? Uh, I kept writing. Uh, at that stage, um, there was in existence. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A, um, a sort of cultural priesthood that yearned for Australian cultural credits. Uh, we, it was the time of the cultural cringe. And so I always wanted to write about the world and Australia. Uh, there were critics who looked upon writing about anything but Australia as, um, a, a, as a betrayal. And uh, that doesn't exist now. You see writers like the young woman, Hannah, who wrote... Hannah the, Kent, yes. Hannah Kent, you know, the yeah. fact that her first book is set in Iceland. Yes. No one treats her as a cultural uh, betrayer, uh, a geographic traitor. No, we don't. Nor and, should they. No, and but we see her as an Australian writer. Uh, a great insecurity then. Yeah, wow. And uh, therefore... Uh, I began to get from the 70s and through the 80s. I got a hard time from those guys, but I... About which book? Oh, a string of them, and then I... uh, They got great reviews elsewhere, but they were... They were culturally objectionable here, and also there was a sense that I'd sold out that uh, but I didn't have it I thought I was writing as well as I could about and, and you were still writing about me. yeah about people and the people and uh yes about homo sapiens sapiens yes the only species we're got but yes. we're, <laughs> and yeah. we're got to make do with it <laughs> yeah, yeah. T- tell me about Schindler's Ark tell me how that came about uh, well um I uh had been to a film festival in Italy where The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith was shown. And on the way back from it, I stopped in the US and did a little bit of a book tour. And, uh, oh, 70s, 80s, uh, 90s, until the global financial crisis, book tours were really flash affairs, although they did work you hard, but you stayed in flash hotels and flew well and ate well and uh, <laughs> uh and you enjoyed that yes and you got uh, uh got used to comforts above your station <laughs> and talking i enjoyed talking about books as i'm do am now absolutely uh, i've got at home uh a, a book second draft of a book that i got 150 200 words of done this morning before i got here that fluency of that you can that you yearn for in writing is uh, is uh, 
something that attends talking more than than writing, and yes. I still have another eight hundred uh, words to chisel out in the rest of the day when I get home. I'm very conscious of the debt I owe the the book and and also myself because I feel rotten if I don't get my quota. Mm. Have you found, I, I want to get back to Schindler's Ark, but before, so, yeah. before I do, I just want to ask you, do you, have you found that the craft of writing has gotten easier over the years Yes, and I don't take its failures as seriously as I did. Right. If I despair in the middle of a book... It's still hard, but it's uh, not the crisis it was, you know. Mm. I expected, you know, when you're a younger writer, you expect the sky to darken. You've got to be very careful not to impose your despair upon the family. Yes. <laughs> the fact yes. that you, because your kids don't give a damn how your book's going, as <laughs> long as there's presents under the tree at Christmas or... or um, uh, Hanukkah or whenever. And so uh, uh, Schindler, I was coming back from this uh, film festival and met an old, um, an older man, man much younger than I am now, uh, who was a um, Holocaust survivor. And I'd always been interested in the Holocaust. I can see where that book came from more clearly now. But I met this man who owned a store. I wanted to buy a briefcase from him because mine was busted. And he got talking to me and he told me he was a Holocaust survivor, that he'd been saved by a man who was God, that though he, a Nazi who was God, but though he wasn't God, uh, but, uh, but though he was God, he wasn't Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, and the whole story sounded phenomenal. He took me out to the back of his store and showed me a copy of the list. He showed me his name on Schindler's list. Uh, he showed me his wife, Mila's name as well. And um, uh, I was fascinated by this. I'd become... Uh, having spent my childhood having bishops define virtue for me, this was a man who was not virtuous but not virtuous. This was a man who was fallen yes. uh, and he was a, a highly uh, questionable Christ deliverer. See, I, I revert to Catholicism when I need imagery. Yes. <laughs> That's what it's best for. That's the only use. <laughs> and uh, so uh, uh, I had always been interested in anti-Semitism because in the seminary we had a great bloke teaching uh, scripture and he was a... Um, brother-in-law of Morris Byers, a famous solicitor general, very political, uh, rather labor voting, I'd say, and a scholar on the Dead Sea Scrolls. So he had all the uh, done the research that showed that Christ came from this um, extreme hardcore zealot community yeah. in um, that we read about in the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
and uh, uh, he taught us that there was a continuity between Christianity and Judaism. Anti-Semitism in Australia, although it existed, was in any case not what it was in Eastern Europe. And so uh, I could never believe that my betters had done something like my metropolitan betters, uh, the ones who weren't hairy-handed um, uh, colonials, had, but the ones at the source had done something like the Holocaust. We had done the Holocaust of the, the genocide of the Aboriginals, uh, but we hadn't done it in the... Um, and we'd done genocide consistently. We hadn't done it in the highly planned technological way that the Nazis had, and that was what fascinated me about the Nazis. And uh, it, it seemed gratuitous to blame a uh, Jewish shoemaker from Gdansk for <laughs> all the sins of the Rothschilds, if mm. they were sins. So anyhow, I, um, uh, I never got anti-Semitism and uh, was rather fascinated by uh, Judaism and, and Jews and had noticed, by the way, that they're all great writers and comics. And so I um, had that interest. Uh, when my father was in the Middle East, he used to send me back cake tins, Australian Comforts Fund cake tins full of Nazi memorabilia. I still have in my a drawer at home uh, a holster, uh, a Luger 8 holster with the swastika on it that mm -hmm. the old man got from somewhere. And uh, so I was being bombarded by quite a lot of this imagery when I was not bombarded, but I was receiving was a lot of yeah. it in Australian Comforts Fun Cake Tents along with absolutely precious things like no one could buy a rugby league ball. They were... Uh, leather goods like that, everything went to the army. All yes. leather went to the armed forces and manufacturing. So to get a real leather uh, deflated yes. rugby league ball with a bladder inside a cake tin with, <laughs> along with Nazi Feldfabel stripes was phenomenal. <laughs> but it's the way I spent part of my childhood. And so... Between them, I, I, I was only one degree of separation. And I'd had this highly formal training as a seminarian. And I know that the church, for all its faults, is not the ESS, but, although it contributed quite a bit of people to the ESS, however, um, I'd been highly conditioned. And my question was, could I have been conditioned into killing other people? And I'll never know, thank God, but mm. I'm scared I might have been. So the, the Holocaust fascinated me in that, in that sense, that it was perpetrated not by mad people, but by mother's sons. Mm. Um, and, um, I, uh, 
that's why I, I was attracted to this figure. Did you ever imagine the success of that book? No, and from it arises a question that I'm asked all the time. Why is the movie called Schindler's List? Well, there are two reasons. One is that the Americans said um, we f- don't think the we should use the ark because people think we're um, equating them with the animals in Noah's ark yes. rather than the ark of the covenant, this, this covenant between people. Uh, and so... Um, we were ultimately talked out of calling it Schindler's Ark in America, and it appeared as Schindler's List. And, of course, this created um, a, a regular question that I have to ask. Yeah. Why did you let them? Uh, when Spielberg was making the movie, I was uh, teaching in inverted commas at University of California, and he asked me to go up and see him, and we spent a day going through the book again and discussing things like what sort of actor Jack Thompson was because he was on the list to be Schindler and uh, other issues, uh, should it be filmed in Prague or Krakow. And uh, I said, could you call the movie Schindler's Ark? And he said, now, sadly, I'm going to use lists throughout. And he did uh, use lists throughout. Uh, but that's the Schindler's Ark, Schindler's um, list story that arose out of my agent saying, well, it's not going to go, you know, people in England will never know that it's called Sch- uh, Schindler's List here and vice yes. versa. So let's not get too uh, ahead of ourselves. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> And it it did become an issue purely because of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Were you happy with the film? Uh, I thought there were um, – um, I, I did like the ambiguity that he emphasised throughout, yes. the ambiguity of Schindler's intentions, uh, the ambiguity of his dealings with people. Uh, but there were a couple of scenes – very popular with the film going public, which I think were uh, irrational, uh, uh, such as when Schindler says, uh, I could have done more, I could have sold this badge, I could have sold um, this Mercedes. If you read the records of Gross Rosen, prisoner of war camp, the big guys at Gross Rosen, whom Schindler's camp was under, didn't he had imposed a number on him he couldn't take in more and he had he'd taken in a number of people from some uh, freight cars that were found one morning in that terrible winter of 44 45 in the local rail yard full of dead and dying um, quarry workers from Auschwitz and he took them in and they were downstairs. You weren't supposed to keep sick people as he had. And my favourite story was of, um, uh, one of my favourite of all time, is of an Australian woman called Leosha Korn, whose children, whose daughters are around as we speak. One of them is an academic and the other is a doctor. And, uh, you know, the normal underachieving 
children, yes. Holocaust survivors, and uh, Leosha had scarlet fever that she'd got in Auschwitz. So he kept her in the cellar where the boilers were, she and a number of other sick people, including the blokes from this half-dead, half-alive set of cars. All that is not in the movie. Yes. And that's the problem. With it's You have to leave so much out of a that's movie right. that I'd rather travel by bus than have the limos of the movie world yes. because you have all your elbow space is in the novel. Anyhow, uh, she uh, was sick unto death. She was hand-fed Leosha Corn of Bondi, was hand-fed by um, Mrs. Uh, Schindler uh, and uh, with Farina, a sort of baby food. And when the uh, SS inspectors came from Gross Rosen to see if everything was right, uh, he took them to see the boilers and he stopped at Leosha's bed and said, oh, this is just a Jewish bitch with scarlet fever. She'll be dead by tomorrow. And then he showed the, the bloke had fallen on the, the inspector had already fallen on the stairs because he was full of brandy. <laughs> and so uh, he brushed these few cots that were still. She got up the day after the end of the war and she lived to be 80 Four or 85 in Bondi. The man who first gave me the story, his wife is turning 97 this year. She was a 22-year-old um, uh, medical student when she was put in the ghetto. Her parents had both been doctors, but she met Leopold in the uh, ghetto and she ended up in... L.A. Uh, handbag, uh, handbag uh, shop. Yeah, and uh, that's owner. Yeah, and she used to do all the hard work out the back while pulled a typical male female yes. story. <laughs> but she's with us, and yeah. she's going to turn ninety seven this month. So yeah. uh, how wonderful is that? Wonderful. You are a wonderful storyteller. The new book is Two Old Men Dying. Um, Tom Keneally, it's been a pleasure and a privilege. I'm sorry we've run out of time. We might need to do a part two. People you... do run out of time with me. I'm so long-winded, it's old age. You'll have to come back. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.